Okay, you're going to be in for a real treat tonight, and uh, in the next uh, tonight and the next four weeks, we're going to learn some things that uh, are really going to thrill us and encourage us so that we can then really get into the book of Genesis to start with and start to go through the Old Testament. I'm going to introduce you to our speaker a little bit longer than I would normally do because I think it's important that there's some kind of a testimony and biography of him uh, available online as we're going to put these things online so that they can be seen later and those that may watch it will know who the speaker is. So uh, Mike Hale, he's in the front row here, is speaking tonight. He was born and reared in Mayfield, Kentucky, developed an awareness and desire for God at an early age, only six to seven years old, and partially as a result of physical infirmities, he experienced juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, developed an interest in science while still a child. American society, government, TV, schools, placed an emphasis on science discoveries and space exploration. He became born again while in high school, influenced by godly grandparents, a local community, and a mother who valued church participation, adult Christian role models, visiting evangelists, citywide crusades, and also watching Billy Graham on TV, which I did a lot those years. <laughs> well, in the 10th grade, Mike made a firm commitment of faith after listening to testimonies from Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, the college students that were part of Campus Crusade for Christ who spoke at his church youth group. He began purchasing Chuck Smith Bible teaching cassettes while still in high school. And of course, I've listened to many Chuck Smith Bible cassettes. I had a special cassette player that you could play twice as fast and it would keep the pitch because <laughs> Pastor Chuck spoke so slowly. After graduating high school, Mike attended the University of Kentucky and received a BS in chemistry. While there, he met Karen Reddick at a Bible study. Mike became Karen's chemistry tutor, and she later became his wife. 45 years of marriage in September. Uh, attended graduate school at Auburn University, receiving an MS in chemical engineering. He worked for Jesus, as he puts it, at the International Fertilizer Development Center, Millican, Shell Chemical, and DuPont, including more than 20 years as a research manager with DuPont in their agricultural products division and crop protection business. Mike has been studying creation science topics since college days. Mike and Karen relocated to Florida in December 2021 during their last 16 years in Delaware. Mike and Karen led a home Bible study for international students and visiting scholars sharing the gospel with many internationals from 30 countries. Part of what Mike taught includes what the, we will now be sharing uh, and seeing tonight. Um, Mike and Karen have four children who live in uh, PA, DE, and NC. Now, I, you're thinking you don't know what that is, do you? What do you mean I don't know? North Carolina, Delaware, Pennsylvania. See? I know. Okay. <laughs> and Seattle, plus five grandchildren, ages seven and below. They participate in the uh, uh, on-campus uh, growth group on Sundays here at the church and the pickleball cult, I mean group. 
Mike and Karen enjoy hosting family and friends in their Florida home, traveling to visit with family and friends, staying physically active, gardening, hiking, cooking, studying, and teaching the Bible. Mike is also a fan of Kentucky and Auburn College sports and a lifetime member of the American Association of Individual Investors. Mike, come on up and teach us. I'm really looking forward to this. I had suggested that he could condense that, but <clears throat> he took the easy path. Thank you, Pastor Carl. We're going to be looking at a really important topic. Um, this is something that impacts all of us and our children and grandchildren, and we need to be better equipped in order to be able to engage society. Um, as you know, there's two basic views in our uh, current country with regards to origins. There is the biblical view, which we as a community are holding. Uh, we recognize what the scriptures teach is there is an omnipotent creator who made all things, and we give him the glory. And of course, there is what's commonly taught in schools, in the media, by government officials who are promoting naturalism, materialism. And so we're going to be examining these two worldviews. And uh, as, you, as you would expect, what a person believes about their origins has a major impact on how they view themselves, how they view the world around them, their morality, their purpose. Um, and so when you have the understanding that we have from Scripture and Revelation, uh, we have the joy of knowing the Creator, not just that there is a creator, but we know who the creator is. So let's briefly pause for a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our lesson. Father God, you're so awesome, and we want to just give you the glory for who you are, for your love for us. Thank you for being the great creator. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us, Lord, into your creation. We know that you have a true, wonderful plan for each person here. Father, your thoughts towards us never cease even though sometimes our thoughts towards you do. But we thank you for your great love, and we just pray that you would be glorified and honored through the things that are said and done. And you know, you know what each person needs to hear, and just ask that you would speak into their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, we're really just doing a, a, an introduction. A, we're laying the groundwork. Um, if you're familiar with building, you know, all buildings have a foundation. And unless you're a structural engineer, you may not think of the foundation as the most exciting part of a building. But the reality is, it has to be the best part of the building. And Jesus told us that in Matthew chapter 7 when he talked about those who built on sand or those who built on the rock. And so tonight, we're going to be just getting grounded in the topic itself. And then we're going to come back over the next several weeks, and we're going to be looking at, from a scientific perspective, what really makes the most sense of these two worldviews. Well, what you're told is, well, it's clear. Naturalism and materialism is what makes the most sense. But I think what you'll see as we get into this together, that that is not at all the case. Um, as Pastor Carl was saying, uh, this material is, is largely what I put together to share with internationals. And many of those internationals came from Asia, where from 
the earliest time in school, they were simply taught materialism, naturalism. There is no God. Uh, this world is all that there is. And when they heard anything at all about something like Christianity, they got the impression that it's, it's really about teaching ethics and morality. It doesn't have to do with the real physical world we live in. It doesn't deal with, with science, things like that. It's about, again, learning about morality. And as I was able to get and share this kind of information to them, many of them were shocked and their eyes were opened and they actually were very appreciative. And so, but today, again, we're going to focus on building our foundation into the subject matter. Now, start with the story. I think almost all of you have heard the name Isaac Newton. And as you see up there, he was born in 1643 and actually lived about 84 years, which for that era was, I think, a long time. Uh, Isaac Newton was born in England. And if you do an internet search on the world's greatest scientists, I've yet to do a search and he didn't show up in the top five list. Now, obviously, he taught and learned about gravity and uh, laws of motion. Uh, he was actually a co-inventor of calculus. Some of you have had calculus and you kind of, where did that come from? Well, Isaac Newton is one of the inventors of calculus. Um, he invented the reflecting telescope. So he was, he was a proficient mathematician, physicist. He's actually considered the father of physics, okay? So this is a story that comes from his life. Let's look at it together. Um, and what that device is that you see right there, some of you in the back may have trouble making it out, it's called an orrery, and it's actually a mechanical solar system. And during the time that that Newton lived, again, he explained uh, how the planets were revolving around the sun. He, he came up with uh, basic mathematical equations for that. And at that period, people were excited to be understanding how things worked in a way that they knew their ancestors didn't understand. And so every generation has its own toys. Uh, in their generation, a mechanical solar system was quite the rage if you could afford it. And he, he commissioned to have one of these built, and, and others did too. So one day as Newton sat reading in his study next to a recently completed mechanical model of the solar system, an atheist friend stepped in. This friend recognized at a glance what was before him. Stepping up to it, he slowly turned the crank. And with undisguised admiration, he watched the heavenly bodies move in their relative speeds in their orbits. Standing off a few feet, he exclaimed, my, what an exquisite thing this is. Who made it? Without looking up from his book, Newton answered, nobody. Quickly turning to Newton, the atheist friend said, evidently you did not understand my question. I asked who made this. Looking up, Newton solemnly assured him that nobody made it. But the aggregation of matter that he so admired had just happened to assume the form that it was in. The astonished man replied with some heat, you must think I'm a fool. Of course somebody made it, and he is a genius. I'd like to know who he is. Laying aside the book, Newton rose. He laid his hand on his friend's shoulder. This thing is but a puny imitation of a much grander, system whose laws you know. 
And I am not able to convince you that this mere toy is without a designer and maker. Yet you profess to believe that the great original from which the design is taken has come into being without either designer or maker. Now, tell me by what sort of reasoning do you reach such an incongruous conclusion? Newton, in studying the, in a solar system in a way that goes beyond what any of us have studied it, you know, and actually coming up with the equations, the formulas for how the planetary bodies moved, he was convinced that the very existence of the universe was evidence of a creator. But a number of his colleagues didn't see it that way. What's commonly held is that... Um, to really believe in a creator and to believe that the creator made all things somehow puts that person on a lower pedestal in terms of their knowledge and understanding and their wisdom. The reality is quite different from that. I've got two slides that highlight some of the most famous scientists that have ever been known. And every one of these professed to be a Christian who believed the Bible. Now, I think you recognize a lot of these names like Nicholas Copernicus. Uh, he's the one that spoke about heliocentricity, which is, again, that the planets are going around the sun. You've got names like Sir Francis Bacon and Galileo Galilei. Um, we've already talked about Isaac Newton. There's all of these various names, Carlos Linnaeus, Robert Boyle, who's considered the father of modern chemistry, John Dalton, who came up with atomic theory, and, and you go on from here, you've got all of these names like Michael Faraday and James Joule and Gregor Mendel, who's considered the father of genetics, Louis Pasteur, Lord Kelvin, Joseph Lister, that's where like Listerine comes from. He came up with antiseptic surgery. You've got Charles Babbage from computer science, all of these various names. And a couple at the end, Werner von Braun, who was brought over from Germany to the United States, who was kind of like the father of the U.S. space program. And a name that you're probably not that knowledgeable of, Charles Stein. Uh, Charles Stein was an organic chemist, and he was the former vice president of DuPont Research and Development. Um, Charles Stein wrote one book in his lifetime, and this is it. I have a a chemist and his Bible. Uh, he himself was the son of a Lutheran pastor. He, he, again, as the head of DuPont Research, and during his era, they started the laboratory that invented nylon and lots of other inventions that came out of that, eventually it led to what was called central research. Again, he saw no conflict whatsoever between recognizing the God of the Bible as creator and being a scientist. Now, I myself, as Pastor Carl had mentioned, I spent more than 20 years as a research manager in DuPont's crop protection business. And as a research manager, I managed PhDs who had degrees in chemical engineering, organic chemistry, biochemistry, analytical chemistry, agronomy, entomology, plant pathology, agricultural engineering, agricultural education, and throughout my 20-plus years in that capacity, I never had a personal conflict between believing in the Bible and what's taught with regards to creation and practicing science. I knew many 
scientists at DuPont who were Bible-believing Christians, and many of them were highly productive. One of my best friends who I co-led a Bible study with who was actually in the pharmaceutical division invented a drug that is a multi-billion dollar drug today. So again, there are many highly productive, competent scientists who were Christian and who trusted and believed in the Bible. Here's an interesting comment also. Some years ago, historians and philosophers of science became intrigued by the question of why modern science arose and then took off like a rocket in an obscure, rather backward corner of the world as it was then, Western Europe. Their findings surprised them. It was biblical literalism that gave rise to modern science. It was when the Bible was widely read and responded to at face value that the conditions were right for modern science to emerge. Now, you you probably won't hear that taught in very many public forums, but that has been validated not simply by Christians who've done the research, but by by non-Christians as well. This is really indisputable. Why did modern science all of a sudden blossom like it did when it did? It was now that the Bible was available and people were reading it and believing in it. Uh, That's one of the books referred to here. The other one about scientific facts in the Bible uh, by Ray Comfort. You know, there are actually a lot of scientific facts, even though it itself is not a science book. It talks about the first and second laws of thermodynamics. It talks about the hydraulic cycle. It talks about how the earth is a sphere, how it is suspended on nothing, Actually, uh, we'll, we'll mention this later on in a different study. Uh, there was the, the inventor of modern oceanography. He got his inspiration from reading in the Psalms, which talked about pathways in the seas. And that led him to do an extensive study of oceanography and the first book on oceanography. It came from reading and meditating in the Psalms. So, some scripture. Uh, Again, I think this is quite familiar, but from Genesis chapter 1, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This, this is where we come up with the term, the dominion mandate. So from the very first chapter, God gave responsibility, authority to humankind to rule over the earth. And people have seen that as the fundamental underlying idea of why pursue science, why pursue technology, because God in charge people to do that. Another scripture from 1 Kings 4, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So, of course, Solomon lived approximately 3,000 years ago. And it says here that God gave Solomon wisdom and great insight. And it wasn't simply into ethics and morality. 
He actually gave insight into plant life, into animal life, birds, reptiles, fish. He was knowledgeable and could talk about and explain these things. And of course, it also speaks to the fact that the ultimate source of that knowledge is the creator himself, which I think partially explains why, again, modern science emerged when it did, largely through Christians who read and studied the Bible in the 14, 15, 1600s. This, this passage from Proverbs 25, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and to search out a matter is the glory of kings. So God has created and he's given it to us to go out and research and to learn. I actually included this in the introduction to my undergraduate thesis. Um, my, my thesis had to do with, at that time, uh, coal, analytical coal studies and again, to me, this, this was the undergirding idea of why go do research. Well, God's given it to us to go explore, to go learn. Now, some people will actually say that creation science is merely an oxymoron. And again, oxymoron, I've got you know, that there if you can't see it. A combination of contradictory or incongruous words, such as awfully good, Open secret, deafening silence, blue blood, honest thief. So some people actually will teach that creation science is an oxymoron. That is clearly not the case. Um, the founders of modern science were not materialists, and they did not see that their science somehow excluded a creator or even making a creator redundant. This recent notion that science somehow equals philosophical materialism has been smuggled into science by atheists, which is sad. Um, there's actually a book teaching about science um, that's been published by the, uh, one of the leading National Academy sciences that they have sent out to schools across the country that in essence claims that Creation science is about religion, period, whereas naturalism is science. And there are people today who are attempting to redefine what science is in terms of its being naturalism. We'll look at that some more in a second. But consider this, the law of cause and effect. The most universal, the most certain of all scientific laws is the law of cause and effect or as it is commonly known, the law of causality. This law says for every effect, there must be a cause, which is both sufficient and logically deduced from experiment and reason. The law of causality is accepted as an axiom and is the basis of science and indeed of modern society. And again, an axiom is a self-evident principle. Examples of an axiom, we have our senses. We have sight, you know, we have sound, we have touch, we have taste and, and hearing. We naturally assume that when we see something, it is, that it's real. Nobody has to prove to me that you're sitting in your chair. I see you and I just, as an axiom, accept that what I'm seeing is reality, Right? So undergirding our thinking are a number of axioms. Well, when it comes to practicing science, the underlying axiom is cause and effect. Why run an experiment if you don't have confidence that 
if you run an experiment, you'll get an effect. And if you repeat the experiment, you'll get the same effect. Whether you do it in America or China or India or anywhere on the earth, you know, if you run a particular experiment with set conditions, you're going to get a repeatable effect. So cause and effect is, is undergirding science. Well, the universe exists. Again, I don't think I have to convince you of that. Some people who kind of get out there, maybe they need help, but the universe exists. That's an effect. Therefore, there must have been a cause. Now, according to materialistic evolution, which is commonly taught in society, the answer is either the universe had no beginning, which was held for many, many years. Um, but this violates the laws of thermodynamics. And so today, that's generally been rejected unless you're in another part of the world where they view cycles as taking place. <clears throat> well, if, if it's had no beginning, or if the, what's the other option? Well, then we're commonly told today the universe created itself. This is a violation of law of non-contradiction. For something to create itself, it must be before it is. Think about it. If it created itself, what is the it? What we actually observe is from nothing comes nothing. So again, if you're a materialist, if you're a naturalist, you're believing something that violates a law of non-contradiction. The law of causality states that every effect must have a sufficient cause. Since self-creation is not logically possible, then the sufficient cause of the universe can only be the God of the Bible, the uncaused first cause who has always existed. The, the cause has to be greater than the effect. The universe, as we're going to learn, especially next time we get together, is immense. We're going to look at how huge it is, how immense it is. Well, the cause has to be greater than the effect. Again, that's fundamental in, in logic. And so what, we're, what we actually can conclude, if you just follow through the logic, is there has to be a source greater than the universe itself. The universe is material. The source is greater than that. It's non-material. So the logical conclusion is that there is a creator. Let's consider another law, the law of biogenesis. Now, for many years throughout time, people believed in something called spontaneous generation. They actually believed that life was emerging continuously. And of course, we'll talk about this again in another lesson during the time of Louis Pasteur. He disproved that. But what is the law? Living things come only from other living things by means of reproduction. Life does not spontaneously arise from non-living material. This is what is observed. Now, we have a canning industry. And in our canning industry, we're packaging billions of canned items every year, and all the ingredients of life are present in each of those canned items. 
So if you go to the store and you brought home something that was canned and you opened it up and you saw something growing in it, would you say, indeed, spontaneous generation has occurred? Well, maybe if you had lived a few hundred years ago, that's what you would have said. But what you now know is it's contaminated. And that's why there's life growing in it. So billions of experiments are run every year and they always have the same effect. Life only comes from life. Materialistic evolution is built on a belief in spontaneous generation, the emergence of life from non-living matter. And again, we're going to be looking at that in a future week and talking about it some more. This has never been observed. So when people want to say, if you believe in creation, it's faith, and I believe in materialistic naturalism, that's science, they're pulling your leg. <laughs> they, they don't know what they believe or they do and they're simply avoiding the obvious. They're actually rejecting a well-proven law of science of biogenesis. They believe, they have to believe in spontaneous generation. And, and I'll tell you now, the math does not support it. You have a better chance of pulling one atom out of the universe of atoms than you have inorganic materials organizing themselves into a living cell. And if you think that you have, you have the ability to pull one atom out of the entire universe, then maybe you can go there and believe in materialistic naturalism. But the math does not support this at all. So just recognize that those who hold that view, they're speaking from a faith position, not from a science position. So let's look about... What, what is Darwinian evolution? It's the theory that all the living forms in the world have arisen from a single source, which itself came from an inorganic form. Now, this was penned by uh, the Dean of Science at the University of Southampton, UK, Gerald Kerkut. He goes on to say, this theory can be called the general theory of evolution and the evidence that supports it is not sufficiently strong to allow us to consider it as anything more than a working hypothesis. A key point here is when I'm speaking about evolution, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the idea that there was inorganic matter and out of that inorganic matter arose a single cell and over the course of three plus billion years, that single cell has become all living organisms on the face of the earth today. That's what Darwinian evolution holds. Now, often people will do word obfuscation, meaning they'll substitute different definitions. So some people will say, don't you believe in change? Well, then you, of course, believe in evolution. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. The Bible itself and the scientists who lived throughout the years before Darwin believed in change. As a matter of fact, what the Bible teaches in Genesis chapter 1 is God created certain kinds of animals. The created kinds is called baramin in the Hebrew. And a kind is like the cat kind. So today... According to modern science, there are 38 different species of cat. 
Okay, so we know, of course, the lion and the tiger, and you know the cougar and the puma and the lynx and the bobcat, the domestic cat, all these different varieties, the panther, all of these different varieties of cat. Well, what God did when he created is he made the original created kind, and he put within those kinds the capability to diversify and adapt to their various environments. If you were to line up all the 38 species of cat, the the lion and the tiger normally occupy different habitats and don't mate. But, you know, you can go to the local cat habitat and they have, I think, a liger. You know what a liger is, right? A lion male who's mated with a female tiger and their offspring is a liger. Whether they have a Tigon, I'm not so sure, but same thing. If a male tiger mates with a female lion, you have a Tigon. So even though they're classified as different species, they can interbreed. And the reality is the larger cats can interbreed. A number of the larger cats interbreed with the medium-sized cats. And the medium-sized cats can interbreed with the small-sized cats. So while a domestic cat is not going to breed with a lion or a tiger... The reality is the spectrum of the cat kind, they can interbreed. And so while they're classified as different species, it all says that they go back to a common origin. And what the scriptures teach is God created kinds, not species. Okay, species have emerged over thousands of years. The llama and the camel, likewise, I think can interbreed. They're very different animals on different continents, but they have created new species by separation over time, the different kinds of elephants, the dog kind. So if you're talking about the 200 or so varieties of domestic dog, if you're talking about the various varieties of the wolf, the jackal, the fox, they're all a part of a kind, of a created kind. So the biblical model says that there was an original kind of dog, and over the course of thousands of years, there has been variation that's taken place and it's led to the formation of many different what are called species today. So again, variation among a kind is a biblical concept, but the notion of inorganic matter turning into a living cell and that living cell over many billions of years resulting in every living organism on the face of the earth, that's Darwinian evolution. So again, beware of obfuscation. Now, we labeled this worldviews and conflict. So let's talk briefly about worldviews. What is that? It's the overall perspective from which one sees and interprets the world. It's a collection of beliefs about life and the universe held by an individual or a group. Now, One way to think about a worldview is, you know, I am looking at you through a pair of glasses. Now, I don't normally think about my glasses unless they're smudged, right? Uh, But I perceive the world through these glasses. All of us are perceiving the world through our worldview. And we naturally interpret things that we see based on our worldview. That's why you can have certain situations that happen say, in the Middle East where somebody straps a bomb on themselves and goes into a 
a location and blows it up and kills themselves and everybody, we think, how could they possibly do that? Why would they do that? Well, clearly they're operating from a very different worldview, right? And so you have to kind of pause and when you're you know, talking and working with somebody to try to get some sense of what is their worldview. So people naturally interpret evidence in a way that is consistent with their worldview. And where we'll be, we'll be going over the next several weeks is we're going to look at the facts and the science and we'll see how this, the facts can be interpreted through different worldviews. Here's an example of a worldview. I think most of you will recognize this. I hope you do. If you don't recognize this, please raise your hand. <laughs> but think about it in light of what I just said. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident is an axiom, remember? We talked about that already. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And again, if you can't read it, unalienable rights are rights that cannot be sold, surrendered, or transferred since they are a gift from the creator. Unalienable rights cannot be taken away or denied by government since they were not bestowed by government. That's an important concept. There are many places in the world today where people are taught that your rights come from the government and the government can take them away at any time that they want to. The founders of this country said that the creator has bestowed unalienable rights on every person and the government cannot interfere with that. Okay, so that's an important concept. This is from the Declaration of Independence. Now, again, they said as a group, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Where does that originate from? Well, what about the religious affiliation of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence? 100% of them considered themselves a Christian. Now, I'll make the point that I don't understand or take that Unitarian Universalists are a genuine Christian because they deny the deity of Christ. But they called themselves Christian. They used the same Bible, okay? So all of these people, a number of whom were graduates of seminaries, they all considered the Bible as a source of inspiration and divine wisdom. And so one reason they could say collectively, we hold these truths to be self-evident is because they held a common worldview, which was grounded in Scripture. Now, if you go beyond the Declaration of Independence and look at <clears throat> the, the other two major documents, the Articles of Confederation and the U.S. Constitution, you've got 175 signers. Once again... 100% of those individuals considered themselves to be Christian. All were familiar with the Bible. So the United States was established as a creationist republic, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created and are endowed by their with certain unalienable rights. So there was agreement among them that 
there is a God who created all things and has given certain rights and capabilities to people. Now, obviously, the world that we live in today is changing. Um, it was during the presidency of Barack Obama that he said the United States is no longer a Christian nation. And actually, as you know, the way things were clearly set up is there was no religious test you know, to be in government. That's actually written into the Constitution. Um, when people do a swearing in, and all congressmen, all senators have to do a swearing in, they have to take an oath of allegiance to the U.S. Constitution. So if there's anybody who's in the House of Representatives or a Senate that is denying the Constitution, they're breaking their oath. They couldn't go into office if they didn't take an oath. But what they take their oath on does vary. And of course, the majority still use the Bible. But in recent swearing ins, one person from California, he used a Superman comic book. Um, obviously, the Quran has been used by a number of people in recent times. A senator from Arizona used her law books. Again, the idea is simply you're, you're making a solemn oath, a commitment based on your value system. So everybody is supposed to take that oath, but actually the basis is changing. And as, as you and I know, our country is changing because it has become much more diverse and in many powerful places today, people don't have a Christian worldview or a creationist worldview. So it's good for us to be equipped so that we can better engage in our society. So if you're looking at the world through man's theories or secular history, or if you're looking at the very same world using scripture and biblical history, you're going to actually come to some very different conclusions. I want us to take a little bit of time. This is probably the next slide. It's the most detailed one just to consider these, these definitions. So from the perspective of, of a naturalistic worldview, we're talking about materialism, the belief that physical matter is the only reality and that everything can be explained in terms of matter and physical phenomena. Naturalism, the belief that all phenomena can be explained in terms of natural causes, the denial that any event or object has a supernatural basis. Empiricism, the belief that experience, especially through the senses, is the only source of knowledge. Relativism, the belief that conceptions about truth and morality are not absolute, but are relative to the persons or groups holding them. Now, in terms of a worldview, does that sort of thing seem prevalent in society? I mentioned the National Academy of Sciences. A poll was done uh, by people with Science Magazine of the membership, and 71% claimed to be atheist, and over 20% said they were agnostic. Only 7% of the members of the National Academy of Sciences said they believed that there was a God. This is one of the most influential scientific bodies in this country that helps shape policy, including education in this country. Now, they're not representative of the general population. These are people who consider themselves the intellectual elite. And this kind of thinking is prevalent among people who consider themselves the intellectual elite. Now, contrast that with this other perspective that I think we can identify with here, 
Creationism is the belief that ascribes the origin of the universe and of life to the will and actions of a non-material creator. That's Genesis chapter 1. Natural law, the belief that fundamental laws of nature exist only because God wills them to. They are the logical, orderly way the creator upholds and sustains the universe. God's laws encompass not only physics, chemistry, and mathematics, but also logic, ethics, and morality. Revelation, the belief that there is certain knowledge that exists that has been revealed to humans by God himself. And of course, to be a Christian is to say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that is revelation when Jesus came and lived among us. And the belief in absolutes, that is the belief that ultimate truth exists and it is grounded in the nature of God. And so certain things like the moral law presented in the Ten Commandments are moral law that's universal. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, honor thy mother and father, these sorts of things, because they flow out from the very nature of who God is. They're not simply arbitrary. Now, if you believed in relativism, a particular society could decide for itself what constitutes murder. And as you're probably aware, during the era of Nazi Germany, they had made it law that certain people should be exterminated. And when Nazi Germany was defeated, the defense that a number of the perpetrators gave was, this was our law. This was what we were commanded to do. We were simply following the law. And that didn't work in the trial because the people at that time who came from the United States and other Western countries said, that was your law, but there was a greater law and you violated the greater law. Thou shalt not murder. Now, again, a pure relativist could say that any particular group or society could make up its own law. Whatever they want to be law is law. So, and as I, I did mention earlier, the National Academy of Sciences, I, I did want to just come back and say, they elect their own members. So if you wonder why things are skewed the way it is, they get to pick who is a member of that society. And so if you're an outspoken believer in God or in creation, don't look for an invitation in the mail. So we have the same body of evidence and one group can argue that this evidence supports creation and others will say it supports evolution. Again, this is where we'll be going the next few weeks. We'll be looking at the data, the information. Same facts, same science. So what is science? Let's pause and reflect on that a second. The intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. And so again, if you think about a laboratory, say a chemistry laboratory, whether it's sitting in the United States or Mexico or Brazil, it doesn't matter. If, if you're running an experiment, you're carefully observing and the way that kind of science works is you have a set of conditions and you run an experiment and you see what kind of results you get. That's operational science and it's practiced the same and that's where the modern world comes from in terms of our inventions and the technology that we take advantage of. 
There's nothing in this definition that points to materialism or naturalism. But there are attempts underway in this country to redefine science in purely materialistic and naturalistic ways. There are people who are actually trying to change this definition. This comes from Oxford Dictionary. So again, you have to look out for word obfuscation. In, in the mind of some people, naturalism, materialism is science. But that's not the true definition. <clears throat> and what is religion? Well, I pulled out two different definitions, but it's a set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe. Something that a person believes and follows devotedly, a cause, principle, or system of beliefs held with ardor and faith. Given this definition, naturalism is not science. Does atheism talk about cause, nature, and purpose of the universe? It does. And it's built on faith. So naturalism is not science. Naturalism is a religion. But why is it being taught, you know, throughout our government school systems? Because they've redefined it as science. In reality, it's religion. But you have the religion of naturalism is now being taught widely throughout our school system because they've been able to convince court systems that naturalism is science. Now, I think you'll recognize this gentleman. So Charles Darwin, just a little bit about him. Um, he, of course, was born in England in 1809, and he lived for 73 years till he was till 1882. He was born into a Unitarian family. His mother took him to the Unitarian church up until the age of eight, and then she passed away. His father and grandfather were both medical doctors, and they hoped for Charles to become a medical doctor. They placed him into an Anglican boarding school, which is where he, he grew up. So he did get exposed to the Anglican church, but also he had the Unitarian Universalist background that came from his family. Um, <clears throat> when he was of age, his father enrolled him in a medical school in Edinburgh, but he really didn't like it. He found the lectures boring. He hated surgery. During the, those days, they had very little anesthesia, and I don't think many of us would enjoy watching surgery with no anesthesia. Um, so he gave up on that. His father re-enrolled him in school at Christ Church uh, at Cambridge and eventually got what was called an ordinary degree where he studied classics. He did study religion. He studied physics, uh, mathematics. He was always interested in the natural world. And of course, I won't go into anything more really on Charles at this point. There's lots you can read about him. But of course, he ultimately wrote this book, which became highly influential and if you, again, go back and look at the list of the world's leading scientists, most of the top 10 will put Charles Darwin in that list, even though he himself did not have any formal training really as a scientist, though he did have skills because, you know, he, he liked nature. He paid a lot of attention to it. But he's renowned because of this book. So this book, which has greatly changed society, it's on the origin of species by means of natural selection, or the preservation of favored races 
in the struggle of life. And very few people talk about the fact that he was a devout racist. Uh, That's politically unacceptable today, so they don't mention that, but he was. He definitely considered uh, people like himself to be superior at the top of the order. What, What is it that evolutionists believe? Well, Charles Darwin, concerning morality, a man who has no assured and ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or of a future existence with retribution and reward can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow those impulses and instincts which are the strongest or which seem to him the best ones. So again, he, he became a devout atheist And once again, he was a relativist in the sense that he said there is no true moral law. It's it's whatever impulses or instincts a person or a society choose to follow. Now, Richard Dawkins is alive today. He's in his 80s. He's a British evolutionary biologist and an author. He was a professor at Oxford. He professes to be an atheist. He is one of the leading antagonists towards creation and intelligent design. Um, His purpose in life appears to be to convince everyone else that there is no purpose in life. He says, humans have always wondered about the meaning of life. Life has no higher purpose than to perpetuate the survival of DNA. Life has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind pitiless indifference. And again, he's reflecting the view of all the leading evolutionists that exist. Now, the average American seeks to synchronize these two different worldviews. They, they take biblical creation, they take evolution, and they try to find some happy median in there. The reality is they are polar opposites. So these people are representing what true atheistic naturalism, Darwinian evolution, speaks of and and believes. Now, this next one, Richard Lewontin, he was an American evolutionary biologist and social commentator. Uh, He also, of course, was a Harvard professor. He was born to Jewish parents but professed atheism. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science, and he equates science with materialism, and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. 
So he's just being honest and straightforward. He, he is a evolutionist, and he's telling you the basis for that is a prior commitment to materialism. When I was uh, an undergraduate student, I took a biology class, and the professor stated to the class, there's really only two basic ideas about origins. There's evolution and there's creation. And he said, because I don't accept the latter, I will teach the former until there's a better explanation. So he himself accepted the fact that there were some real deficiencies in the Darwinian evolutionary story, but he wasn't prepared to go and embrace the alternative. That's usually based on a moral choice, including pride. <clears throat> William Provine, again, a little bit of a sad story in that he was born into a Presbyterian family, I think in the state of Alabama, but once he got into college, like many people, he was widely exposed to evolutionary theory and he rejected Christianity and he became a leading proponent of atheism and of Darwinian evolution. He was never a hostile towards Christians, though. Again, he grew up in a community and he tried to maintain at least a friendly demeanor, which is not necessarily the case for a number of these people. But he says, let me summarize my views on what the modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And I must say that these are basically Darwin's views. There are no gods, no purposeful forces of any kind, no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I am going to be completely dead. That's just all. That's going to be the end of me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, no free will for humans either. Okay, this, this is the underlying philosophy that goes along with Darwinian evolution. And again, much of our society is permeated with this today, even Disney. <laughs> now, if this works, we've got one video tonight. Let's see how this works. A young man said, I think some people may have an inability to cope, and maybe this might sound a bit extreme, but that might be Darwinian theory, the Darwin theory of survival of the fittest. Maybe some of us aren't meant to survive, maybe some of us are meant to kill ourselves. And why did this young man think that human life has such little value? Perhaps he'd heard people like Oxford professor Peter Atkins, who said, We are just a bit of slime on the planet. Likewise, psychologist Susan Blackmore said, if you really think about evolution and why we human beings are here, you have to come to the conclusion that we're here for absolutely no reason at all. What a stark contrast to the words of Jesus, who said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, in future weeks, we'll have actually a lot more video to share. Again, tonight we're laying a foundation. <clears throat> The Bible does declare what God did. And I don't have a list, but I've sort of kept, as I've gone through the study of the Bible, there's 66 books in the Bible. I'm quite certain that more than half of them talk about God as the creator. Genesis 1, 1, which we're going to be studying in a few weeks, that's how God introduces himself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how he introduces himself. So, again, what does the Bible declare, well, I just said it. But 
I don't know if you've thought about it this way, but I find this a bit intriguing. In the beginning refers to time, right? Would you agree, beginning time? Heavens actually refers to what we think of as dimension or space. And earth, in this context, refers to matter. So if you look at it this way, this verse declares that God, and it uses a plural Hebrew word, Elohim. It says that in the beginning, well, the universe consists of time, space, and matter. Beginning refers to time, which is a trinity, its past, present, and future. Heavens refers to space, which is length, width, and height. It's a trinity. Earth refers to matter, which is solid, liquid, and gas. It's a trinity. And then we're left with this mystery that this verse uses a plural word for God matched with a singular verb. So from the very first verse of the Bible, a mystery is introduced. And you have to keep reading in the Bible to see the explanation for that mystery. Psalm 89.11, the heavens are yours and the earth is yours. Everything in the world is yours. So what does that mean for us? We're all guests in God's house. I don't know about you. When you go visit somebody and you enter into their house, don't you usually try to follow their rules, right? Should I leave my shoes at the front door or do I wear my shoes, right? Yeah, and you're, you're wanting to follow the rules of the house. Well, guess what? We're all living in God's house and he's got certain rules and expectations for his creation. This verse from Isaiah 42 God the Lord created the heavens and he stretched them out. And I think I've found 10 different verses in the Bible that says that God stretched out the heavens, uh, which gets to do some other things we might talk about in the future. But he stretched them out. He created the earth and everything in it. He gives breath to everyone, life to everyone who walks the earth. And then this is a messianic passage that goes on to say, And it is he who says, I, the Lord, have called you. And if you read the context, it's the Messiah. I've called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you. I will give you to my people Israel as a symbol of my covenant with them. And you will be a light to guide the nations. You will free the captives from prison, releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else. And God is the creator. He will not give that glory away to anyone else. Jesus has come to bring light to the nations. And we're the body of Christ. So we are vessels through whom Jesus will continue to bring light to the nations. So that's part of our responsibility. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. This will be our special focus next week when we get together. We're going to be looking at all the unique factors about this planet on which we live that are improbable, but make this place that we live habitable. And, and what I'll show you is, based on all of those factors, you can 
reached the conclusion mathematically that this is the only place in the entire galaxy where life is possible. And we'll be talking about that in some detail with a lot of slides next week. Psalm 115, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. He's made us stewards. Now he owns it. He's not relinquishing ownership, but he has placed us, which also it says in Genesis chapter one, as stewards over the earth. So we have a responsibility to take care of it in a way that's consistent with who he is and his values. But the Bible goes on, and I think this is, this is even more exciting, not just what God did, but why. Why did God do this? <clears throat> Look at what the scriptures say, because you'll find yourself in these next few verses. In Ephesians 1, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. If you think about that, it should make you happy. Long ago, before you ever existed, God decided that he wanted to adopt you into his family. He wanted to bring you to himself. Now, what kept him from doing that? Sin in our lives. So how did he make it possible for us to become a part of his family? He did it through Jesus Christ. So he sent Jesus as the Lamb of God to take away your sin. And when you repent and believe in him, your sin is taken away. And you are now able to enter into that union with with him to be a part of his family. This isn't the only passage, though. John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given to me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants you to be with him that you may behold his glory, but it, it gets even better than that. Colossians 4, when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. In 2 Thessalonians, he called you to salvation when he told you the good news. Now you can share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5, in his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So he wants you to be a part of his family. He wants you to behold his glory and he then wants to share that glory with you forever. That's what he has in, in mind for each of you. The Westminster Catechism says, what then is the chief end of man? These wise and learned individuals said, man's chief end is to glorify God. And I wanted to look up the definition again to be clear on that. To praise, to magnify, to ascribe honor to, in thought or in words, to extol. I really feel we do a great job of that. I know as we gather to worship together and sing, we have great songs, and so many of them are acknowledging the wonder and greatness of God, and I think we sense the glory when we begin to worship him. But, but in reality, this goes far beyond a worship service. God's saying that our purpose is to glorify God. That would be day in and day out, every day. 
to bring honor to, and praise to him. So you can check yourself. Are you doing that? I hope you are. If you're not, maybe think about how you could do even more of that. And to enjoy him forever. And there's verses that go along with that. He wants us to have joy. He wants us to have pleasure. He wants us to enjoy him. So we're about to wrap it up, but I want to tell, tell you where we're going. So over the next four weeks, we're going to be focused on what I consider to be some significant challenges to the Darwinian evolutionary idea or theory. And, and here are some of the things we'll be looking at. Next week, our primary focus, really our sole focus, will be something called teleology. Teleology is the appearance of purpose and design. Um, biologists who are naturalists keep reminding themselves, and you'll see that in a video, you have to keep reminding yourself that these things are not designed, they say. <laughs> but they keep using the word as designed because inherently they see design. <clears throat> well, the whole universe, and especially the earth and life, has the, the appearance of purpose and design. And, and we'll be looking at that. After that, we'll come together and we're going to talk about something called irreducible complexity. What we now know is living systems are not simple and there is no such thing as a simple cell. There are some cells that are more simple than others, but the simplest of cells, the best analogy for them is a city. If you think about a city, you've got a library with all the books and the information and the knowledge. You've got factories. You've got transportation systems. You've got waste disposal systems. You've got police force. You've got firefighting. You've got all of these different systems. The simplest cell has to have all of those things in place to function. We'll be looking a good bit at irreducible complexity and the challenges of abiogenesis, that is the, the idea that life has emerged on its own from inorganic chemistry into the first living cell. So that'll be our focus next week. <clears throat> After that, we're going to be looking at what, what is, I think, the most rapidly advancing area of science, and that is our understanding of the genetic code. I mean, things are happening on a monthly basis now in terms of human understanding. And in reality, it's blowing people's minds. The, the DNA is four-dimensional. It can be read forward and it can be read backward. It, the DNA shifts around. It can actually reprogram itself. So we'll be looking at that. That may be the more te technically challenging part, but nevertheless, it's something you should want to appreciate because it's where science is today on the cutting edge. We're going to be looking at something called Haldane's Dilemma, which the basic thought there is if humans and apes share a common ancestor going back, say, four million years, and they have diverged, how much time would it really take to go from a common ancestor to what we are today? There hasn't been nearly enough time. You couldn't do it in four million years. It'd take billions of years if it, if it was even possible. And, and we'll be delving into that. Then we're going to kind of quickly go through some other things called genetic entropy, the fact that the human race is aging. We, we talk a lot about like genetic diseases. We're going to talk about some of that. And the fact is the human race is dying. It's not advancing. Darwinian evolution says things are going to get better, that the human genome is adding new information and it's advancing. The science does not support that. The science is the exact opposite. 
and the population geneticists around the world know it. They just, in faith, believe that there's got to be an answer to that because things are supposed to be going forward, but they see them going backward. The fossil record, which Charles Darwin said should be the proof of his theory, but it does not support his theory. The fact that there are so many so-called living fossils today, briefly touching on thermodynamics, just the basic first and second law and why it points towards creation, and then some age estimates of the earth and the universe. So this is, again, where we'll be going over the next few weeks. We've got a number of videos we'll look at, and so I'll look forward to sharing it with you. So, yeah.